0: Welcome to Twin Day Wealth IQ. My name is John Lachlan. I'll be your host. Before we get started on the first episode, I wanted to talk a little bit about the podcast in general and, and what we want to bring to you. We wanted to have conversations surrounding investing in wealth management that looked at sort of a holistic approach, whether it's investment psychology or wealth management across generations, tax planning, all these sorts of things. We wanted to have conversations with industry experts and people who really know this stuff in and out. So to get us started, we're talking with Jonathan Spencer, the founder of Twenday Wealth Management, and he's going to talk us through five types of investment strategies, or five types of investors, really, and and how their mindset makes a big difference in the types of returns that they see. So Jonathan, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background?
1: Thanks for having me, John. Uh, Sure. So originally from South Africa, came over to the U.S. about eight years ago, have a background in finance and private equity, I'm a CFA charter holder, and uh, also did a master's in international relations. Uh, but really started Twenday Investment Group just because of you know searching for a more holistic wealth management service for my own family's needs. Um, and I think you have a lot of service providers that might do some asset management or some financial planning. But really, what every family needs is a essentially a virtual family office where uh, in one, under one umbrella, you can um, achieve some relational alignment and even you know think about where it is that you want to go, what you want your wealth to mean, and then put some sophisticated plans in place in terms of getting the right entities I- in place and also having policy statements that kind of act as uh, a guide rail to help you get there. And then you need to actually implement that with um, some sophisticated asset management services. Uh, and then you want to be able to measure that, which in and of itself is a complex thing. But if you do all that, you're able to to have more meaningful conversations with, uh, with other stakeholders, maybe your spouse, et cetera. And you can stay on the same page, and uh, it really serves as a virtuous cycle because then you can, you know, refine that trajectory, and ultimately your wealth can, your wealth goals can can serve your, your life goals. So, so that's what Twend is—is is essentially a, a virtual family office.
0: So let's take a look. I mean, we had a, an interesting end of the year for 2018. Let's talk a little bit about that um, and and we're going to go over something you wrote called The Tale of the Five Investors," which really is is five responses to volatility, which is something that we sort of got used to not seeing a lot of for the better part of the last decade. So um, after that we'll move into 2019. but let's let's start with that. So you know what what would you say? It's the first tough year in a while for investors. Um, from your perspective, what do you think you can learn from that?
1: absolutely i think uh, you know the balanced benchmark is, is down about 6.3% for the year so that's the sort of return that one could have expected from a very well diversified portfolio with maybe uh 55% equity and and you know substantial portion in fixed income et cetera. Uh, and that's disconcerting because a lot of that happened in the fourth quarter the developed markets were down 13 percent in the fourth quarter um alone uh we had the worst december since the great depression and we had we had the worst uh, christmas eve day um on on the 24th ever so people were kind of wishing each other uh, a merry crisis and and a happy new fear um but but now uh Markets are up in, in early January, and that's kind of, you know, we, we'll talk more about expectations um, later, but, you know, we, we don't really see any major structural issues uh, with the economy, and so we are still, um, still constructive on equity.
0: To pull a little bit from what you wrote, um, it's no surprise that years of record low interest rates and easy money created an environment where passive indices enjoyed a smooth ride and strong returns. Uh, and then you quote Warren Buffett, who said, you only find out who's swimming naked when the tide goes out. So do you think that the tide went out last year? I mean, what, what would you say to that sort of outlook?
1: I think so. I mean, we are later in the cycle and, and rates are rising, but they are still low. But when you combine that with um, other late-cycle dynamics and some geopolitical turbulence, it was enough of a tidal outflow uh, to cause what was a material correction. I, I don't think it was just a small little bump. I mean, when when big uh, indices are down 13%, as I mentioned, that actually causes a bit of a, um, a buying opportunity. Um, and so... You know, I'd add that with with these temporary periods of drawdown in a portfolio, uh, it really does evoke uh, a guttural response for an investor because you know oftentimes it's people's life savings that you're talking about. And so behavioral finance experts study how this loss aversion in humans can lead to some irrational decisions. And as such, I think when you when you have a volatile year like we've had, it's a good opportunity to examine your own reactions um, to volatility because that's a way that you better your, yourself as an investor and, and then you're able to keep yourself on track for for more long-term success.
0: So to, to give everybody a little bit of background, the, the idea behind this is sort of backtesting five different strategies that investors would typically use, and Jonathan will go through this in just a second. But... Um, you basically you measured their performance the return and the risk over the last 15 years so this is not just 2018 but this is like you said more of a long-term outlook um, and we're going to actually link to this in the show notes so you can read it if you like but I guess let's start so the first one is no exposure Neville so walk us through sort of what that looks like.
1: So yeah, this is something we run into all the time you know you'll, you'll get a new prospective client and you'll sit down with them and you'll see that uh, over the last 20 years, or they've been invested in uh, some annuities or fixed income, just an, an overly conservative approach. And um, times, what people don't realize is they might b- have received advice at some point um, from a, a highly incentivized annuity salesman. Um, and so they end up, you know, after fees, which can be substantial, maybe they end up kind of averaging a very consistent 3.5% return per year. And so that's that's no exposure, Neville, our first investor type. So it and sounds
0: like he's really, that's the epitome of a, a passive investor. I mean, he's not looking at the portfolio. He doesn't pay attention to the markets. This is something that he might have picked up a long time ago and has just sort of let it go from then on.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't even say it's a passive investor. Uh, it, it's more of an abdicating investor because he hasn't even got that much market exposure but it's still good that he's saving and over the course of 15 years he's turned his 1 million dollars into 1.56 million a year 1.56 million you know today and um but it's been one boring year after another and just some, some very very small returns.
0: So yeah, very modest return year over year. And then the next you have listed is Maverick Mary. So tell us about her. So Mary can
1: predict the future. And over the last 15 years, she's used three asset classes, so s and p 500 for equity, uh, a total bond ETF, um, AWG and then GLD which is the the gold ETF. And she, because of her, her macroeconomic foresight, she's able to allocate 70% of her portfolio in what will be the best of the three asset classes and then 15% to each of the other. And she does that every quarter, rebalances every quarter. And, um, and as you can imagine, uh, with that kind of clairvoyant edge, she has, you know, 2008 crisis left her unscathed, and, uh, you know, she easily predicted uh, gold would outperform. As, as central banks created easy money following the crisis, and then she switched to um, an equity portfolio when the, the bull market was in full swing. And so she's a, she's achieved 18% annualized return over 15 years, which... Wow is enough to turn $1 million into $12.26 million today. Um, But unfortunately, while Mary's a great investor, she's also an imaginary friend whom we can only truly know in
0: hindsight. Right. So it's important for listeners to understand this is, I mean, they're all fictional people, but she is especially fictional in that she has, like you said, perfect foresight and perfect foreknowledge of, of sort of what's coming around the curve.
1: Yes, but but a useful fictional friend to have because it demonstrates how powerful asset allocation is for achieving superior returns.
0: Right, and then, so moving into point three, we have Sell It All Susie.
1: Yes, so something else that you run into is um, Sell It All Susie, who is an emotional wreck. Um, So she's an avid CNBC fan, uh, she's often rocked by the dramatic headlines and her her asset alloca- allocation plan is kind of has a base of 55% equities, 35% bonds, and 10% gold. But unfortunately, whenever she sees two quarters of, of negative return, um, she she gets out of equities for the next two years because uh, Salad or Susie, is very worried about a uh, bear market, and so you know, the result is actually that, that that kind of aversion is almost enough to take her out of equities altogether, and there's only sporadic occasions when uh, when she's actually do, does have uh, equity exposure, and oftentimes she might get her confidence back sort of with the rest of the herd, in time to manu- maybe only sh- enjoy a, a short run of, of solid equity performance before another another downturn occurs, and so while equity is um, one of the best performing asset classes over a long period of time, you this this, this uh, fictitious friend makes it clear that. There are there are those disconcerting uh, quarters of of negative return that occur with uh, equity markets in particular,
0: right? So you wrote here it took her fifteen years to turn her one million initial investment into two million dollars. So having that fearful outlook, I mean, it, she got modest returns, but it really just barely outpaced Neville, uh, who who was basically just in an annuity kind of person for 15 years. Um, So then after Sell It All, Susie, we have Hold On Harry. Um, Again, pretty self-evident from the name, but tell us a little bit about that investment strategy.
1: Sure. So Hold On Harry is a prudent and consistent fella, and he sticks to his asset allocation plan of 55% equities, 35% bonds, and 10% gold. And he also rebalances quarterly. And um, this kind of approach has has done well for him but he you know he's also taken some knocks i mean there's years where he's been down close to to 10% so he's had to he's had to have some nerve but he still has relentless discipline he sticks to his plan and he's turned 1 million dollars from 15 years ago into 2.7 million today so it's almost seven percent return per annum
0: so yeah i think a big point there is is discipline so i mean it's the complete inverse of sell it all susie he's not bothered by the headlines at all he's not affected by that he's he's got a plan he's sticking to it and although there might be some really scary months quarters years in there it you know as you can see from the results it actually turns out pretty well over a 15 year span right So then, uh, Sophisticated Sophie is our our last of the five, Um, and she's actually, to give a little bit of a bio, she's the daughter of Maverick Mary and Hold On Harry, you said. So tell us, I'm assuming it's going to be some kind of a hybrid between the two. Tell us a little bit about uh, Sophie there.
1: So right, so Sophie is the the investor that we we strive to be like, and um, she's more human than her mother, so she just achieves the average of her father Harry's return. Uh, from his consistent approach, and then 70% of her maverick mother's return. So in other words, Sophie has a core asset allocation that she sticks to, but then she also has another bucket where she does more dynamic tactical shifts based on the macroeconomic um, backdrop. And she doesn't always get it right, but she gets it right a lot of the time because she has a systematic data-driven approach um, and so she may, for example, avoid uh, a massive drawdown in a bear market, but she may not avoid every single correction, but still she gets it right enough at the time. And, uh, and when she gets it wrong, she has very low downside because she still has a measure of disciplined diversification thanks to her father Hold on, Harry's influence in her investing style.
0: So it sounds like what you're getting at is really the importance of being systematic. Um, how, how do you go about doing that? Well, to be systematic, you really need to
1: design the, the investment process or the investment machine um, and then refine that as time goes forward so that you're putting a degree of separation between emotional impulses and structured thought because your structured thought about markets, about valuations and investment opportunities should really be reflected um, in the design of your investment approach. And if you do that, you've got a way that you can be dynamic like, uh, like Sophie, um, but still have a, an aspect of structure like hold on, Harry.
0: So you're getting away from the, uh, you know, looking at every headline and doom and gloom and panic and sell off and all that kind of stuff.
1: Right. Because otherwise you might think you're some kind of maverick or or structured investor, but really you're just
0: going to end up being a a salad or Susie. So looking back at all of the five, you said sophisticated, Sophie is sort of the one that we should strive to be. Um, But... Looking at just the numbers and looking at sort of the comparison between these investors, what are some of the big takeaways? That if you're just getting into investing, or if you haven't really looked at a portfolio in a while, or if you're a pretty active person in the market but you kind of want to get a comparison, what are some of the big takeaways from from these five styles? Absolutely, I think there's a number of
1: important lessons here. And uh, number one is that asset allocation is probably the biggest driver of portfolio returns. I mean, you see that with Maverick Mary ending up with. Um, more than 7.3 times the wealth of uh, no exposure Neville. Um, and interestingly, the industry is not really uh, set up to always provide a good asset allocation service. So let me give you an example. You'll ha- you may have a, a financial planner who says, okay, you're 60 years old, that means 120 minus your age is 60." You should have um sixty percent in equity and forty
0: percent in bonds. that's the pretty simple back of the napkin math that we've heard for a long time about equity and bond investing
1: right so there's no real there's no real shifts that occur between those and then and then people might have a lot of active management and mutual funds, but those are often within very specific sectors so um let's say a software sector uh mutual fund or ETF and so there's there may be some active management that's occurring at that asset class level but we don't always see active management between those different buckets and that's that's a peril because um it's it's asset allocation is is the biggest driver of uh, performance and that really brings us to the second lesson which is Extreme conservative positioning is generally only appropriate if your timeline is very short, so you're going to need your money, you know, in the next five or ten years, um, or if a recession is is imminent. Otherwise, that kind of positioning doesn't p- pay because the worst uh, long-term performance here in this um, analysis was the safest strategy, the no exposure level. Um, and I think something people often forget is that there is a defensive benefit to ex- excess return. So if you get more return than you need, you, you create a, a buffer of excess value. And if you end up needing that money for um, for whatever reason, you still have a portfolio, whereas if you if you end up needing a little more than you, you thought you might have on a, a conservative portfolio, it can actually... Um, end up being more risky to to go with something less volatile where there's no growth because attack can be the best form of defense and, and vice versa.
0: Mm. So there's also, I think, a lesson about staying steadfast. Um, you know, obviously we're looking at a 15 year span here with these examples, um, but it seems to me that even through periods of of panic or recession, it, it pays to kind of stick it out. So how does that apply to to being the savvy investor that you want to be?
1: Sure. So, I mean, if you look, hold on, Harry ha- now has almost 30% more wealth than Salator Susie, um, even though he hasn't even considered any macroeconomic news or anything like that. Um, he's just kind of held the course. And, you know, even if you had invested in S&P 500 back in 2004 and you had a, a an allocation 100% equity, you would actually do all right in the long term. I mean, there would be some some very tough times in 2008, but if you didn't sell at the bottom, Mm -hmm. uh, if you just held all the way through, you'd you'd end up with um, pretty reasonable performance today.
0: You also have written here, successful investing requires skill structure and emotional maturity. So I guess talk a little bit about that. We can kind of see from the examples, but I think a lot of people really get caught up in headlines and really can't see the forest for the trees sometimes.
1: Right. So, I mean, this is this is as much a behavioral study as it is an empirical study because, you know, if you, if you decide that you're going to have a very structured approach and that you're going to stick to that, well, with any approach, there's going to be times where that approach is in favor and uh, there's going to be times where... It's not in favour um, because I think very few things would would have zero volatility and, and only go in one direction. And so there's going to be times where you're going to have to have conviction um, that you're in the right kind of um, allocation plan, uh, that you have the right approach to your investment strategy, and um, and and then you've got to hold the course because I think y- the the biggest losses to be had again are, are for are for those who um Jump from one losing horse to to another
0: so uh neglecting maverick Mary, who we already talked about having clairvoyant powers and able to see the future um, we can see that sophie's strategy is is the winner, and she's the one that we should kind of strive to be um so what are the what's the takeaway from that particularly what if you had to pick a few qualities about her about that strategy for investing uh what would they be
1: so You know, Sophie's strategy has a mix of discipline, diversification, and rebalancing, but then also an overlay of intelligent tactical shifts. So, for example, uh, she's probably overweight equities unless a recession is imminent. Um, She may uh, favor real assets like gold in particularly inflationary times, and um if you look at the results here, you know, even without quite matching her her mother's performance on, on that sleeve, she has ended up with more wealth than any other character besides um you know, besides her mum. And uh she's accomplished this with reasonably low volatility. So I think the you know, the results there speak for themselves
0: so let's look forward into 2019 we've just started the year we've already seen a slight rally in some in some stocks but looking more toward the rest of the year and toward what we've seen in the economy how do we think about becoming the sophisticated sophie for this this coming year
1: well i think it's a it's a great year for dynamic tactical asset allocation i think asset allocation will be um, just as important in 2019 as it was in 2018, um, but I think that expected returns will be higher because we're starting the year with a more with more reasonable uh, valuations. Um, so what we see is okay, the economy is still growing, but it's growing a little slower. And uh, people talk about the yield curve, uh, maybe in a similar way a farmer might consider cows congregating in the corner of a field as a sign of of rain and by that i mean it's a it's a relatively crude indicator if you look at it on its own but it is still an important indicator Mm. and um and you know if you look at the two two and ten year yield it's actually not yet inverted um so it's flattening yes but there's no reason to expect uh, a bear market right when An inversion occurs. I mean, you could be looking at a 12 month lead time. If you look at the late 90s, there were amazing uh, returns to be had even with a flat and inverted um,
0: yield curve. I think there might be something there also that maybe we should explore is that I think people associate bear market with recession automatically and they sort of tie the two together. And if they see any sort of Dip in, in stocks or valuations or a market correction or something like that that they immediately assume a recession's imminent. Um, so, what would you say about that to kind of tease those two apart? Well, I think
1: a, a significant bear market usually coincides with an economic recession. So that's a you know slowdown and well negative negative economic growth. Uh, now that's not what we see at the moment. Um, just to say again. Um, but then, even while the economy is growing, you may have smaller corrections or, or even significant corrections along the way. Hmm. Um, and those are much harder
0: to spot. So looking back at the December jobs report that we got a few weeks ago, um, it was extremely high. It, it exceeded a lot of expectations. What does that say about the, the position of the overall U.S. economy?
1: I, I think it suggests that there's still uh, more running room for, for this cycle because I mean, we added 312,000 jobs in December. What we look for is we like to see uh, the economy adding at least 100,000 jobs a, a month. Um, because below that point, you know, what, what comes after less jobs is eventually uh, negative job growth, and, and that means unemployment. And when unemployment rises, that typically coincides with uh, recession as well. And you'll see unemployment will will rise very quickly uh, over a little painful period like a 2008 and then you'll see those unemployment numbers gradually improve maybe even over a decade
0: so uh, another talking point that we'll we'll hear a lot about is uh, interest rates the fed raising interest rates and talking about treasury yields so being a sophisticated investor and sort of putting that piece into place where it belongs how do we how do we look at that in terms of an overall outlook where does that fit in I
1: think, you know, there's two things. One is what's the direction of rates and then what's the level of rates. And while rates are rising and we do expect rates to rise further, um, as long as U.S. growth is is strong enough to enable the Fed to continue, rates are not yet restrictive and they are are relatively low by historical uh, standards. Um, So I don't think that, you know, raising rates is a bad thing. I think that in, you know in some ways it's a good thing because it shows that um, that there are
0: positive expectations for, for growth in the economy. Then looking at this backdrop overall, how do we think about asset allocation in 2019 to you know if we want to be the sophisticated investor?
1: I think that it's going to be, be a particularly important year for dynamic um, asset allocation shifts. So, you know, we'll see some major trend reversals, long term trend reversals. Um so as as we start the year, I think there's benefit to being moderately overweight equity. Um and, and we still prefer value and quality, um, but markets did were oversold in, in uh Q four and so there's definitely some, some opportunity to just um, participating in in the subsequent recovery here, um, you know rates are still rising. So the thing to watch for is for that trend to reverse because um, you know while rates are rising, we believe there'll be a better entry point for fixed income uh, later, maybe even in 12 months' time, um, and that could coincide with uh, with an appropriate time to take some risk off the table as well. Um, I think that the dollar will peak this year. Um, so what what people may not realize is the dollar, from a purchasing power uh, perspective, is at a cyclical high. So if you look at the Economist's Big Mac Index, it looks at what a Big Mac costs around the world and and what does that mean for where inflation, uh, where uh, exchange rate should be. Um, and sometimes they're a third of actual exchange rates, and that means you can buy with the same dollars three times as many hamburgers in uh, in some other countries, and and that's really at a cyclical high. Mm. Um, and so, what does that mean? It means that as the uh, as we reach that point, and and again, I don't think we're there yet, but there's going to be a tremendous opportunity to get into um, real assets, and then also you know, uh, emerging markets may be be cheap at the moment, and we think that they'll get cheaper, um, but once the dollar does start to weaken, that's going to be a tremendous uh, backwind for, um, or tailwind rather, for uh, emerging markets because a lot of them have dollar-denominated debt. You're looking at markets that are already very cheap from a valuation perspective, and so I think that we could see the start of a, a tremendous bull run in uh, emerging markets.
0: And then uh, coming off of last year, you, know, you mentioned earlier that it really was just sort of a correction and that you think um, the, the drop in price really is a correction back to maybe the more closer to the intrinsic value of some of these stocks. So if you're a value investor... Um, Or if you seek to be a value investor, how do you think about that sort of correction and and moving forward in in selecting your next, uh, you know, equities?
1: So, yes, I think that there's tremendous uh, opportunities for classic value investing at the moment. Um, PEG ratios are at crisis levels, Uh, PE ratios. PEG
0: ratio is the price to earnings uh, divided by the growth rate.
1: Right. Um, And and so if you just look at price divided by earnings – that's a measure of how cheap a stock is, but it doesn't take into account whether those earnings are growing. Because if earnings are growing, well, we should pay more for them. So dividing the P/E ratio by the the, the growth ratio gives us that peg ratio. A- and those peg ratios are at crisis levels, which means you can get great companies that are growing nicely um, at 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 a you know very attractive prices. So if you can pick through the rubble. Um, after these kinds of corrections, I think you can really come up with uh, tremendous opportunities.
0: And then what about adding to a portfolio in terms of commodities? Um, I know we haven't mentioned it a whole lot on on this episode, but um, if someone was interested in that, what are some of the takeaways for the outlook uh, this coming year?
1: Well, I think commodities have really done quite poorly over – they have a very long – metals at least have a very long – supply cycle just because it takes a a long time to build a mine etc so the supply response to a higher price or lower price is very slow Um, and so what you're seeing is simultaneously that that supply cycle bottoming um, because of underinvestment and then you're also seeing uh, a, a cyclical high in the dollar at some point this year and so that'll, that'll signal, uh, I think, a tremendous um, opportunity for commodities as well, similar to, similar to emerging markets, so and the two move together. Um, and then I think for oil, uh, which is worth, worth just uh, making this discrepancy here, with shale, there's a much shorter supply cycle. And so as um, prices rise, they could quickly be driven back down. But when when any commodity is trading below its uh, marginal cost of new production, there's really an opportunity for uh, price improvement at some point. And I think oil's there at, at this stage now. Though you know there are shale uh, plays that are still profitable at fifty dollars a barrel um, for a lot of the the international. Um, Sources such as Saudi Arabia, you know, they need eighty dollars a barrel to balance their budget. So, essentially, uh, we're still quite quite far below that um, that marginal cost of new production. And I think we'll see a spike, but I think it'll be temporary. So, I think we'll we'll see a good first quarter or maybe first couple of quarters in oil, and then. Uh, we may see we may see sort of the shale producers sort of drill that price back down.
0: Well, it sounds like we got a lot to think about for 2019. Um, but it sounds like the moral of the story is to stay steadfast and disciplined, um, and that seems to be the best best path forward. Wonderful, definitely opportunities, and I think you're
1: right. Uh, systematic um, approaches will, will win the race.
0: Very good. All right, Jonathan Spencer, thank you for being here. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners for joining us on the first episode of Twenday Wealth IQ. We'll sign off with our standard disclaimer. Any views expressed on the podcast are provided for general information purposes only and do not constitute investing, accounting, legal, tax, or other professional advice. You should not base any investing decisions solely on what you hear on this podcast. Twenday Investment Group does not seek to provide services in jurisdictions where they are not duly licensed. Past performance is not an indicator of future results.